Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, Audio Boom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. The show's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. Coming up on Space Time, a giant stellar void discovered near the heart of the Milky Way, mapping exotic matter inside neutron stars, and the Dream Chaser space plane ready for more flight tests. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have discovered a huge region around the centre of our galaxy which appears to be devoid of young stars. The findings, reported in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, provide new insights into the evolution of the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way is a large spiral galaxy some 100,000 light-years across. It contains billions of stars, with our Sun about 27,000 light-years from its centre. Measuring the distribution of stars in the Milky Way is crucial to science's understanding of how the galaxy formed and evolved. One of the tools astronomers use to help them are pulsating stars known as Cepheid variables, which are used to determine cosmic distances. Cepheid variables are young stars between, say, 10 and 300 million years old. That might sound old, but it's really quite young compared to, say, our Sun, which is some 4.6 billion years old. Cepheid variables are unusual in that they pulsate in brightness at regular intervals, and the length of each of these cycles is directly related to their luminosity. Astronomers hypothesise that the pulsation occurs because doubly ionised helium, whose atoms are missing both electrons, is more opaque than singly ionised helium. And the more helium is heated, the more ionised it becomes. At the dimmest part of a Cepheid variable's pulse cycle, the ionised gas in the outer layers of the star's atmosphere is opaque and so is heated by the star's radiation. Now, this increase in temperature causes the star's outer layer to expand. And as this outer layer expands, it cools, and so becomes less ionised and therefore more transparent, allowing the radiation to escape. With the radiation escaping, the expansion stops and reverses due to the star's gravitational attraction, and then the process repeats over and over again. Because astronomers can work out the true luminosity of a Cepheid variable star by its pulse rate, they can work out how far away it is by its apparent luminosity through the inverse square law, which explains why a light looks dimmer the further away it is. However, finding Cepheid variables in the inner Milky Way has been difficult in the past because our galaxy is full of interstellar dust, which blocks out most of the light and therefore hides many stars from view. Astronomers were able to overcome the problem by using near-infrared observations made by the Sutherland Telescope in South Africa. But to their surprise, they found hardly any Cepheid variables in a massive region of space stretching for thousands of light years from the galactic core. The finding is interesting because astronomers had previously detected lots of Cepheid variables in a region of space about 150 light years in radius out from the heart of the Milky Way. This newly discovered Cepheid variable desert extending out to about 8,000 light years from the centre of the galaxy came as a huge surprise. 
it suggests that a large part of our galaxy, called the extreme inner disk, contains no young stars. Something has stopped stellar production there. The new infrared observations are in line with earlier radio telescope observations, which also found no new stars being born in this desert region. The authors say the new results indicate that there's been no significant star formation in a huge region of the galaxy for hundreds of millions of years. Scientists have opened a new window into the mystery of what lies inside neutron stars. Other than black hole singularities, neutron stars are the densest objects in the universe. They're formed when stars much more massive than our sun die at the end of their lives. You see, stars are sort of balancing acts between the downward pressure of gravity and the outward pressure of nuclear fusion. However, once a star runs out of nuclear fuel, gravity wins, causing a sudden and catastrophic collapse of the giant star's entire mass down onto its core. The positively charged protons and negatively charged electrons in the atoms are crushed together, forming neutrons, hence the star's name. A process called neutron degeneracy stops the star's mass collapsing any further due to the Pauli exclusion principle, which prevents two identical fermions, that is particles with half-integer spin, from occupying the same quantum state at the same time. While most of the progenitor star's mass is blasted off into space as a core-collapse supernova, the core itself remains as a neutron star, a rapidly spinning object just a few kilometres across and as dense as the nucleus of an atom. In fact, a teaspoon of neutron star stuff would weigh over 900 times more than the Great Pyramid of Giza. Current models indicate that neutron stars probably have a surface composed of ordinary atomic nuclei crushed into a solid lattice, with a sea of electrons flowing through the gaps between them. Scientists hypothesise that the nuclei at the surface are most likely iron, due to iron's high binding energy per nucleon. However, it's also possible that heavy elements like iron would sink below the visible surface, leaving a thin film of lighter helium and hydrogen nuclei instead. In young pulsars, where the surface temperature exceeds a billion Kelvin, the surface would be fluid rather than solid. It's only older, cooler neutron stars that are likely to have a pure solid surface. The atmosphere, if that's the right word, around a neutron star is hypothesised to be just a few micrometres thick at most, a thin film with its dynamics strongly controlled by the neutron star's powerful magnetic field. Below the atmosphere, the neutron star would have an extremely hard solid crust. The extreme gravitational field of the neutron star would make the crust smoother than a billiard ball, with surface irregularities no greater than, say, 5 millimetres. A thick mantle of neutrons, increasing in density with depth, is thought to extend below the crust. While these nuclei would decay quickly on Earth, they're kept stable in neutron stars by tremendous pressures. Increasing depth equates to greater and greater increases in the concentration of free neutrons, with fewer and fewer nuclei and free electrons. Eventually, the nuclei become increasingly small due to gravity and pressure overwhelming the strong nuclear force. The core of the neutron star is thought to be composed of almost nothing but neutrons. The composition of the super-dense matter in the core, however, remains somewhat uncertain. One model describes the core as superfluid neutron degenerate matter, consisting of mostly neutrons, with just a sprinkling of protons and electrons. However, more exotic forms of matter could also exist there, including degenerate strange matter. This comprises a flavour of quark known as a strange quark, as well as the lighter, more common up and down quarks. Other possibilities include matter containing high energy pions and kaons in addition to neutrons, 
or it could include ultra-dense quark degenerate matter. To determine if neutron stars contain exotic matter in the form of dense, deconfined quark matter, scientists writing in physical review letters and on the pre-press physics blog archive.org have reported the first accurate determination of the thermodynamic properties of dense quark matter under the sorts of violent conditions likely to occur during neutron star mergers. In the process, it suggests a step towards distinguishing between neutron and quark matter cores in neutron stars. The recent detection of gravitational waves emitted by two merging black holes by the LIGO and Virgo collaborations has opened up a new observational window on the cosmos. Future observations of similar merges between two neutron stars, or for that matter between a neutron star and a black hole, may well revolutionise what science knows about the properties of neutron stars. By providing new detailed dynamical information about the material properties of these stars, such measurements would shed fresh light on their internal composition. Ultimately, they may even answer the question of whether neutron stars are composed solely of ordinary atomic nuclei or whether they do contain more exotic, dense, deconfined quark matter. In order to be able to properly take advantage of future observational data, it's essential that science's theoretical understanding of the possible constituents of neutron star matter, be it dense nuclear or quark matter, be as accurate as possible. The problem is there are few first-principle tools around for studying such a strongly interacting medium due to the complexity of the underlying theories of quantum chromodynamics. At the moment, the most important tools available for such studies are specific theories for nuclear interactions, which are applicable to nuclear matter, and thermal perturbation theory, which is applicable for deconfined quark matter. The authors applied thermal perturbation theory to a high order, generalising previous work applicable only at zero Kelvin. Now, this was an important step because neutron star mergers are likely to occur at extremely high temperatures reaching maybe 100 megaelectron volts or a billion Kelvin. The new results will allow scientists to conduct realistic simulations with neutron stars containing quark matter cores. It's an important step towards eventually distinguishing between neutron and quark matter cores inside neutron stars. Researchers from around Australia have begun testing satellites at the Australian National University's Mount Stromlo Space Testing Facilities, ahead of a mass satellite launch from the International Space Station later this year. Three CubeSats, that is satellites built from cubes about 10 centimetres per side, have been developed by researchers at the Australian National University, as well as the universities of Sydney, New South Wales, Adelaide and South Australia. They'll all be launched into space as part of the European Union's QB50 launch of 50 satellites. Before heading into space, the satellites are undergoing rigorous testing at a space simulator run by Mount Stromlo's Advanced Instrumentation Technology Centre. The tests will make sure each of the CubeSats are space-ready. The European Union's QB50 program has 27 countries building satellites for the mass launch, including China, the United States, Brazil and Russia. The Mount Stromlo facilities provide researchers and industry with a comprehensive one-stop shop for pre-launch testing. It'll therefore be playing an important role in the growing multi-million dollar space industry. CubeSats are emerging as a space industry standard design for low-cost space research. Originally conceived for student projects, more than 100 CubeSats have now been launched around the Earth and some are even being launched around Mars. 
one of the Aussie CubeSats will be studying space weather and solar activity. These are important factors affecting satellite reliability, as well as communication systems both in the air and on the ground, and terrestrial transmission lines feeding electrical power grids. The satellite carries radiation counters, a GPS receiver, a photonic spectrograph and a new probe to measure the ionosphere. The second CubeSat will carry new instruments to measure atmospheric water and carbon dioxide content for weather and climate scientists. The third CubeSat will carry four separate experiments, including a specially designed GPS receiver and electronics with the ability to self-repair. The idea is if the satellite gets hit by radiation or something breaks, it's capable of reconfiguring another part of its circuits to do that job and also attempt to fix the damaged component. Dr Naomi Mathers from the Mount Stromlo Observatory says CubeSats have opened up new research windows with a wide variety of applications. The development of the CubeSat standard has made it possible for universities and smaller companies to participate in the, the space industry, space research, commercial applications. Because of the standardisation of the components and the fact that the cost of the launch is coming down because they can be deployed from, from standard launches. We're now seeing three teams from Australia participate in an international mission to launch 50 CubeSats for research. We had to demonstrate that we had the ability to design and, and build these satellites, but it's great to see this, this level of international collaboration and cooperation. The three Australian CubeSats each are looking at a, a different thing, aren't they, for specific scientific targets? Yes, so what makes them common is that, that each of them has to carry the QB50 payload, so they all have to contribute to the joint mission. But then any space they have left, they can do whatever else they want to do. So we have one of the satellites is um, looking at measuring the space environment, looking at some sort of some space weather applications, looking at GPS within the space environment. One of the satellites is looking at the ability to 3D print a satellite, so different materials. And one of them is carrying a spectrometer. So there's not an awful lot of space in a, a CubeSat. These little satellites are only... 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres by 20 centimetres. So they're quite a small unit. So when you think about the ability to fit all of that science and technology into such a small package, it's pretty impressive. I think it was earlier this year that the ISS launched CubeSat, which was primarily built out of a, a standard smartphone. So one of the things that, that's brought the cost down of smartphones is the ability to produce components in their hundreds of thousands, millions. We're starting the researchers and developers look at is it possible, will, will some of those components survive the space environment? So if it's only a short mission, so not for long duration missions, but for some of the shorter missions, having radiation hardened components isn't always a necessity. So you need to investigate what are the critical components and when can you just use those off-the-shelf components and then that brings the cost down. So it's not always possible but when it is obviously we want to keep the cost down. Now you were talking just a moment ago about the environment of space and the ANU has something they call a space simulator. Tell me about that. With, with such a harsh environment we need to demonstrate that these satellites will survive in the space environment. So materials don't like getting cold and they don't like being put in vacuum. So our space simulation facility our Wombat XL, as we call it, can simulate the temperature and vacuum of space. So we can put these satellites into our simulator and demonstrate that they will survive and operate effectively within this space environment. The other essential test that we'll be doing over the next couple of weeks is proving that these satellites will survive the vibration of launch. So we need to demonstrate that as the satellites are being launched on the rocket, they won't shake themselves to pieces and destroy themselves and, and everything else. So these are both requirements from the launch provider, but also we want to demonstrate that our Australian satellites 
flights will all function perfectly. Now, I take it this is an Ariane space launch, is it? The company that's taking them to the space station is actually NanoRacks in the US. Okay. So they'll be launched in the United States. The QB50 satellites will be launched in a few different batches. So they won't all be on the same launch vehicle. They won't all be deployed from the space station at the same time. It takes quite a while to launch 50 satellites. So we hope to see our... Australian satellite being launched late 2016, early 2017. Does this involve any new technologies or, or is this the sort of technology that we already have access to that we're already using, we're just putting it in a different application? A combination. The spectrometer that's being flown on one of the satellites is definitely a, a new development. The materials for the 3D printing is quite a new material, so we need to understand how that behaves. The CubeSats themselves, many of the solar panels and other the main satellite structure have been flown before, so these are well understood. So when we're trying to keep the risk down for a project, you very carefully select as many components that have been demonstrated before and only one or two new components so that you can investigate how they behave and be very confident that it will work and complete its mission as you've designed. That's Dr Naomi Mathers from the Australian National University's Mount Stromlo Observatory. Sierra Nevada Corporation's Dream Chaser space plane is being shipped to California for another round of flight tests. Dream Chaser was designed to provide NASA with a new reusable crew transportation system, taking up to seven astronauts at a time to and from the International Space Station following the premature mothballing of the space shuttle fleet in 2011. However, the winged lifting body design lost out to Boeing CST-100 Starliner and the SpaceX Dragon V2 capsule. Sierra Nevada is now hoping to construct two Dream Chaser spacecraft in an unmanned cargo configuration capable of flying 30 missions to the space station over a 10-year lifespan. Dream Chaser has already passed two key NASA milestones in Sierra Nevada's bid for future supply ship contracts. Now an engineering test version of the Dream Chaser, which has undergone a series of upgrades and hardware testing at Sierra Nevada's spacecraft assembly facility in Louisville, Colorado, is being sent to NASA's Armstrong Flight Research Center at the Edwards Air Force Base on Rogers Dry Lake, just outside Los Angeles. Once at Edwards, Dream Chaser will undertake pre-flight ground evaluation, verification and validation tests of its onboard systems before a new round of flight tests. The new flight test will allow NASA to check Dream Chaser's control systems and orbital flight software, calculate the spacecraft's handling and performance characteristics, and confirm its subsonic aerodynamic properties. If all goes well, Dream Chaser could be joining the SpaceX Dragon and Orbital Sciences Cygnus cargo ships on regular supply missions to the International Space Station by the second half of 2019. Dream Chaser has been designed to launch vertically on top of an Atlas V, Ariane 5 or Falcon 9 heavy rocket. Its lifting body wing design allows it to land horizontally, autonomously on conventional runways. The Dream Chaser design actually goes back over 50 years. Its origins date back to 1957 and the United States Air Force X-20 Dinosaur spacecraft, which was to be launched on top of a modified Titan III rocket. 
NASA continued its development in the 1960s and early 70s with a range of experimental spacecraft including the Northrop M2, the Martin X-23 Prime, the Martin Marietta X-24 and the Northrop HF-10 lifting bodies. During the 1990s, NASA used the same basic design to develop the HL-20 experimental space plane. This would eventually evolve into the X-38 emergency crew return vehicle. The X-38 was to be an emergency escape pod transported to the International Space Station in the payload bay of a space shuttle. It would then be docked to the orbiting outpost until needed. However, the project was cancelled in 2002 due to federal budget cuts. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, Audioboom, and from spacetimewithstuartgary.com. For more, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Just search for Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This show is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts or Audioboom. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. This month, exploring the mystery of fast radio bursts.